Happy New Year's Eve. Welcome. Are you looking forward to 2018? Okay, kind of a mixed reaction. Are you glad to see 2017 out the door? <laughs> mixed reaction again. All right. Well, again, welcome. I'm glad you're worshiping with us today. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for coming out on this snowy, chilly kind of day. Um, so, uh, if you have been a believer for any length of time, then I'm going to bet that you've heard God's call. That is, I'm going to bet that you know someone or that you yourself have heard God's call. I could look around this room and I could point you, if you haven't, to individuals that you should go talk to if you think you've never heard God's call in your life um, to, to do something or to be something. And I'm talking the, the call beyond the call to salvation. Although there's going to be a lot of similarities with here today. I'm not referring to the call to salvation. I'm talking about that call that comes from God for you to step into something new, to do something that's out of the ordinary, that maybe you wouldn't normally be doing. It's not part of your routine. I'm talking about the kind of call that says, as a believer, it's calling into you into a new level of trust in God. Today, I want to make the point that you can trust the God who calls you. If God is the one who makes the call, you can trust him to meet you in that call. You can trust that the God who called you will provide for you. You can trust that that God who called you into something will be the God who walks with you and goes before you to make a way in that call. Today, I want to look at three men from Scripture who answered that call. Who, when God called, said, here I am. Three men who, from Scripture, when God called their name, they answered. They answered without knowing what God would call them to. So those three men we're going to look at today are Abraham, Moses, and a man named Ananias. Now, not the Ananias in chapter 5 of Acts who was struck dead because he didn't follow what God called him to do. This is the Ananias of Acts 9 who does do what God calls him to do. There's probably a lesson in that as well. Um, now, if you were to go through Scripture, you would actually find that there's five total people who use that, that line, here am I, or here I am. And they would include Isaiah and Samuel, but for the sake of time, we're not going to go through all of those today. We're going to stick to the three I mentioned. So, today, as we look at God's call, I want to look at those here am I responses from Abraham, from Moses, and from Ananias. We'll take a quick look at each person. That's how we're going to start. We'll do a quick, quick vignette of each one. And then we're going to make three points. We're going to talk about God's call requires you 
to make a response to here I am ascription. God's call is going to test you. It's going to test your faith. Now, if you have a handout, though, what I want you to kind of do, I'm going to think of this more positively. I want you to scratch out, test your faith, and write and strengthen your faith. Because the end result, if you do this positively, is that it's actually going to strengthen your faith when you answer God's call. And then the final thing is that God's call requires you to act on it. It's just not a verbal response. And then you walk away. It's not just the here I am and then you're done. Because after God calls and you make the response, then he lays out what he's got for you to do. And it requires you to act upon it. And therein lies the challenge. Finally, my hope is that all of this leads you to one final point, And that is that you can trust the God who calls you. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your examples in Scripture. Those men who stepped up when you called them by name and said, here I am. Lord, would you bless this word today as we go forward. May it bring life to those who hear. Lord, strengthen me as I preach it. And Lord, would you help me to speak only the words that you would have me speak. Lord, would you bless your people today as you prepare them for this coming year. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most of you are familiar with the story of Abraham. You're familiar with how God calls him out of the land that he was in. He says, leave the land that you're in, follow me. I'm going to show you a new land to go into. You may remember that Abraham early on is called Abram. That Abram receives five promises from God in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And those five promises, they really deal with land. It's all connected to that land that God said, I'm going to show you a new land. He promises that he'll make him a great nation. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Sort of a protection issue. And then he says, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, the problem is, he's one man who's married, and he has servants. How do you make a nation from that? And that is very much, at 75 years old, on Abram's mind. To have a nation, I must have descendants. I must have an heir. There must be somebody to take the nation, to take this kingdom, to leave this whatever it's going to be, to be a blessing beyond me. For my name to be remembered, somebody has to carry this on. And the story that consistently runs through the, the next several chapters, chapter 15, chapter 17, up into chapter 18 of Genesis is, God, where's my heir? And you see that God develops this story as he goes through and he promises, yes, you're going to have an heir. Yes, this heir is, is going to be your own son. Yes, this heir in particular is going to come through Sarah. And we don't have time to go through all of it today, but that's the short story of it. And we're going to pick up our story there. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 22, 
verses 1 through 3, where now Abram has had the promise that a son would come and has received that son. The son has been born. His name is Isaac. Isaac is now about 10 to maybe 15 years old. Hard to tell, particularly from the story. But he's a younger man, older boy, younger man, teenage, probably early teenage years. And in this section, you, you can tell that, or from as you read up to it, that Abraham just rejoices over this young man. He is excited. He is happy. He is in his sweet spot. He's got an heir. God's things are coming along. He's receiving the blessing of God. And then we get to chapter 22. Let's read it. Cha verses 1 through 3, chapter 22 of Genesis. And God says, or I'm sorry, and it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he, Abraham, said, here I am. He, God, said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, as you know, if you're familiar with the story, Isaac does not get sacrificed. Got that one out. Isaac does not get sacrificed. Abraham does all of the preparation and is ready to sacrifice his son. Literally has the knife. It's in the air, ready to plunge it down into his son. And God will stop him. God will speak to him again. And again, Abraham will respond quickly, here am I. Go figure. I bet he does. I would too. And God provides a ram for the sacrifice instead. At the end of this, God will reaffirm all of the promises to Abraham one last time. And Abraham will call this place on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. Okay, that's vignette one. Keep that in mind. Okay? A call by God, a response, a test of faith. And an action that has to occur. Let's look at Moses. 400 years later, Abraham's descendants now number in the millions. They're residing in the land of Egypt. The Egyptians, in fact, there are so many Hebrews, the Egyptians are now afraid of them. So, to take care of this problem, they enslave the Hebrews. And then they start a program of genocide, basically killing all the male infants. That as they're born, the idea is that they're supposed to kill all of the male infants. 
And that's where our story picks up. As one Hebrew woman hides her son in a basket, puts him in the Nile, and then floats him down the river. That little child, that baby, winds up floating in to the bathing area of Pharaoh's daughter. She sends someone to open the basket. Inside of the basket, it's a baby, and she takes that baby as her own and raises him in Pharaoh's house until he is a man. So he is trained and raised to be a leader in Egypt. His name is Moses. Moses is raised and trained to do all of the things that a pharaoh would be able to do. And yet, he becomes very aware of his roots, who he is. He's a Hebrew. And as he looks out about him, he becomes aware and very aware of the slavery that his people are in and the suffering that they're going through. And one day, while he's out, he's watching an Egyptian foreman beat a Hebrew slave. And he stops him, and in fact, he kills him, and then buries the body. The next day, he's out, and he sees two Hebrews fighting. And he says, brothers, why, why are you fighting one another? And one of them looks at him and basically says, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Ooh. That caught him off guard. He wasn't expecting that. He was rejected, if you will, by his own people and now very aware that the word was on the street, that he had killed an Egyptian. And the price for that would be his life. And so he gets his stuff and he heads out into the desert. He runs. And while he's out there, he meets a girl. The story of many men's lives. We run from one thing, we meet a girl. And, you know, the rest was history at that point. They got married. He becomes a shepherd, settles down, hangs out in the desert with sheep, and, you know, leads the shepherd's life. And he's pretty happy from all accounts. So our story picks up now. In chapter 3, he's in the desert. He's a shepherd. God's going to meet him. Exodus 3, verses 1 through 4. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why this bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he, Moses, said, here I am. Now you can read the rest of the events that are going to occur to Moses in the next and, and how he responds to God's call, and there's a lot of things he's going to say. That's in the rest of chapter 3 and, and a good part of chapter 4. 
Moses is going to give lots of reasons why he can't go back to Egypt from fear of Pharaoh to rejection of the Israelites to his inability to speak well. And for each reason that he cannot answer God's call, God's going to come back and promise him to be with him. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of this. Here's, my, here's the solutions. To some extent, they're not perfectly clear solutions yet because he hasn't gone. But God's basically saying, trust me, I'll be with you in this. And then in chapter 4, you're going to find at the end of chapter 4, he gets up. Once he's had this conversation, he goes back to Jethro, explains what happened, and they leave. He gets his family, and they head back to Egypt. That's our story. So, in our, our layout here, he hears the God call of God and responds. He has to face the fears. He gets tested. And then he responds with an action. He goes to Egypt. Okay, now we've heard the narrative of God calling Abraham and Moses. We got one more. We're going to jump into. We're going to go fast forward now about 1,600 years, and we're going to look at a man named Ananias. We don't know much about Ananias. It really kind of just jumps in in the story. He was a believer in the early church. He lived in Damascus. We don't know how he became a believer. It doesn't really tell us that. But we know something of the circumstances of the time in which Ananias was a believer. The church, the early church, and Christians were under heavy persecution. Recently, there was this man. His name was Saul. He had overseen the death of one of the early Christian leaders, a guy named Stephen. And then he started rounding up Christians from across Jerusalem, throwing them into jail, imprisoning them and their families. He would go from house to house and search them out. And if he thought they were followers of the way, they would be imprisoned. The way was what they called Christianity at the time, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? And so, now, having cleared out most of Jerusalem, he, was, he had orders from the Pharisees. Those were the religious leaders of the day. He had orders to go to Damascus and start doing the same thing in Damascus. Word was out on the street that Saul was on the way. As we pick up our story in chapter 9, Saul and those with him were on the road to Damascus to carry out their task of jailing and imprisoning these new believers. And he hears a voice. There's this great clap of, uh, there's this big light that shines. He's knocked to the ground and he hears a voice and he says, Is that you, Lord? The voice goes on to explain that it's Jesus, whom Saul has persecuted. That he has gone and that he is to go now into the city. And God tells him where to go. Jesus tells him exactly where to go and to wait. And he would tell him what was going to happen next. Now his friends have to leave Saul because he's now blinded by that flash of light. He can't see. And scripture tells us that for three days Saul had been without sight 
And during that time, he neither ate nor he drank nor drank. He just sat there and prayed. We're going to pick up our story now in Acts 9, verses 10 through 17. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias responded, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come to him and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And we're going to actually stop there, but if you read the rest of that section, 13 through 17, you would find out that Ananias is like, whoa, hello, God, do you know who this man is? Because I know who this man is, and I know what he came here for. Are you sure you want to do this? You sure you want me to do this? But after he interacts with God, and God says, no, you need to go do this. You need to go pray for this man. You need to lay hands on him so that he's healed, because I've got big things for this guy. What happens? Ananias gets up, goes down to the street called Straight, into the house of Judas, and lays hands on Saul. You know Saul, for those of you who are familiar with the story, as the Apostle Paul. So Ananias gets the call, responds. Here I am. He has to face something. He has to face his fear. He's tested. His faith is tested. And then he acts upon it. And that's what each of us are called to do. So now, as we look at, the, now we've got the three scenarios. We've got Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got Ananias. We've seen in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, here are these people from Scripture who have answered the call of God. Let's move into the next section that says, what is the response? How are we called to respond? Because when God calls, we're required to respond. A call from God always requires a response. So when we talk about the call of God, one of the first questions I often hear is, how do I really know that's God? Because we can talk ourselves out of just about anything. If I just give myself a little space between thinking I've heard from God and what he's asking me to do, I can eventually talk myself right out of it, walk away from it. Well, I think in this story we learn something really clear. There is no doubt in any of these three people's minds that God has spoken to them. There is no doubt in Abraham's mind, there's no doubt in Moses' mind, and there's no doubt in Ananias' mind. Who has spoken? And the response 
is clear. Here am I. Now, I want you to understand, you're looking at somebody like Abraham, and Abraham has been a believer, he's been following God for 40 plus years. He has heard God's voice again and again and again. You go, oh yeah, Abraham, of course he understands, he recognizes God's voice. I mean, it had been probably three years, at least in Scripture, three, four years since God had spoken to him, at least that we see in Scripture. But nonetheless, he recognizes God's voice. Well, what about Moses? Man, that man, great man of God. Well, not at this point, he's not. This is the first time he hears God's voice. Okay, all right. Admittedly, he gets a burning bush. It's a little bit of an eye-opener. Then there's Ananias. Don't know much about Ananias. Don't know how long he's been a believer. The church, as we understand it, has been around about maybe a year by this time. Maybe a little longer. If he had started following Jesus way early in Jesus' um, you know, first coming on the scene, maybe he's been following Jesus at some level for four years. But chances are it isn't. He's a relatively new believer. But does he hear God's voice? Does he recognize God's voice? Yeah, sure does. When you hear God's call, you recognize his voice. If you've been a believer at any length of time, you recognize God's voice. You know because it's asking you to do something that really is kind of odd for you. It's, it's, it's not the norm. When God calls, he makes you in your spirit because the Holy Spirit is within you. He makes you aware as a believer that it's him who's speaking with you. And I believe that though you may question it, you may want to deny it, you may want to walk away from it, there's no doubt you know when God calls. Now, another thing I hear from people quite often along the same lines is, who am I that God would call me? You know, really, he must want somebody else. I'm nobody. I'm just average Joe Christian on the street, really haven't done anything special, don't have any real gifts, don't have any real talents, you know. Who am I? Well, that's the beautiful thing. It's not about who you are. Now, you are important. God sent his son to die for you. God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son just for you. If you'd been the only one, he would have sent his son for you. So, yes, God loves you deeply. But on the other hand, he's God. What does he need you to do? Nothing. He could do it all himself. He could go, boom, and everybody in the world would be a believer if that was his sovereign will. But it's not. And his sovereign will says, I want you. You. Hello. I'm calling you. My name. Mike. Mike. It isn't about my gifts, my talents. It's not about your gifts and your talents, what you're capable of. It's about the God who is sovereign over those things and gives you the ability to do them, who calls you into what is too big for you to do, what is impossible for you to do. Oh, I was, hey, Moses, yeah, I want you to go over to Egypt and 
I just want you to get these six million people out from under their Pharaoh and his armies. And I want you to take them in to this promised land I'm going to show you. Make sure they get fed while you're at it, because that would be bad. If they all died, I'd be really ticked off at you. Well, that's not how it works. God calls you to something bigger and says, I'm going to walk with you in doing this. I'm going to go before you and make a way for you. Because this is way bigger than you're able to camp able to do or comprehend or happen or, or whatever else. And that may be as simple as you walking across the street and talking to your neighbor. Because that is just that far out of your comfort zone that you would never think of doing that on your own. It doesn't have to be six million slaves being freed from Egypt. It might be your neighbor is sick and God puts on your heart to go take a meal to their house. You and me, that might be a huge struggle. What if I'm rejected by Lola's family? What if I'm laughed at? What if they say, no, I don't want it? The call of God in this case isn't about what you're capable of or some big deed even. See, God's always after one thing. He's after your heart. God is always after your heart. Because that's what he wants. And he asks you to do things, and he tests you in ways that are always going to test your heart. Because that's what God wants. So. think as we look at this um, there are two points that would be instructive for us as we looked at even um, where we're at in this idea of call and that is that God will make himself known to those he chooses he will always make himself known and to those whom he calls there's the need to respond. Let me give you two kind of thoughts out of all of those people we've looked at. And in each case, there's no question that God's directing the call to someone specifically, and there's no question that God will meet them where they are. You don't have to position yourself from God. And I think that's an important part we want to make sure we understand. You don't need, I mean, I, I would want every one of you to have times of prayer, meditation, fasting, where you can meet God, where you're really putting your heart out to meet God, to hear him speak. But what was Moses doing? He's tending flock in the desert. Just another piece of sand, another rock. No, he wasn't doing anything. When God wants you, he'll meet you where you're at. He will get your attention. What was Abraham doing? Nothing special from what I can tell. He's hanging out at home. Hey, Sarah, what's for dinner? Abraham. Whoa, here I am, God. He's not doing anything. He didn't position himself to receive from God. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Ananias doesn't say he's doing anything. He's just at the house. Hey, Ananias, here I am, Lord. 
When God wants you, when God wants to put the call into your life, he'll find you right where you're at. And there won't be a doubt in your mind that God just spoke that to you. And that's important. And you can trust that God who calls you is going to meet you and provide for you. And you can trust that that God who calls you knows exactly your circumstances, where you're at, and what he's asking you to do. But, as we mentioned, when God calls you and you respond, you can expect something to come that's going to challenge your faith. Because God is after your heart. When God calls, there will be a test of your faith. There will be a strengthening of your faith, as I said. Because I'm going to believe that you're going to answer the call. You're going to step into what God says. You're going to meet God's challenge. And I guarantee when you walk out the other end, your faith will be strengthened. It is a test of your faith, but it will strengthen your faith when you respond and act. But let's look at this. So, how, does we, how do we test people's faith? How do we build confidence in something? Well, in the military... For those of you who have ever watched uh, any sort of, of the comedies on the military or have gone through military training yourself, one of the things they like to do when you go through basic training is put you through something called the gas chamber. Anybody been through a gas chamber? Yeah, okay. It's not one of those things you tend to forget. There is more snot in one place than I've ever seen in the world. Well, that sounds kind of gross. But so what do they do? The gas chamber is meant for you to trust the protective mask and protective gear that the Army gives you in case you're ever in a chemical warfare environment. So they get you, you put on all this stuff, the shoe, you put on the, the clothes that they give you, and then the little booties and the gloves, and, and then you put on the mask, you know, and they march you around for a little while. They make sure it seals correctly. You know, they're doing all this fun stuff. And then they march you in, file you into this tent that's like got this gray mist all in it. That's the, that's the tear gas that's in it. You know, and it's thick. And they walk you in there. And then they have you do calisthenics. You do jumping jacks, push-ups, all kinds of different things so that you're breathing real heavy. Cool. That sounds good so far, right? And then they say, all clear. It's not, obviously, because there's gray misses everywhere. And you take off your mask. And then they have you do the same thing again. And about three seconds into this, tears are coming out. In 10 seconds, there's just snot just voluntarily going out. You just have nothing. There's no control over it. It's just going everywhere. People start hurling. It's ugly. And then they, then they walk you out of the tent. What did you just learn? One, the tear gas is no fun but that your protective mask works. That chemical gear, because your face is on fire now. I mean, it just, it's anything that, that, that stuff touches is on fire. So it wasn't when I had my mask on. I wasn't coughing and choking when my mask was on. So I can trust the gear they gave me. Well, I don't think God wants you to be involuntary snotting and sneezing and throwing up all over the place. But he does do things that cause you to walk out the other end and go, 
God was faithful, I can trust him. He's going to ask you to do things that are hard. And they're going to test you. But he does it so that your faith is built. So when Abraham gets the call in Genesis 22, he responds to God and says, here I am. But immediately, and it tells us he's being tested by God in chapter 20. That's what it starts off with. God tested Abraham. Abraham says, I, here I am. And then God goes to the core, the very heart of Abraham's desires. He says, take your son, your only son, to the place I'm going to show you and sacrifice him. Whoa, God, hold on. That's the promise. All those things you've been promising me for years that I've waited for 25, now 35, 40 years for. All those promises for the future, the generations, the kingdoms, the sands of the sea. You know, there's more of them. Remember that, God? More of them than the sands of the sea. That doesn't happen if he's dead. You have to understand, this was at the core of what Abraham understood. The promised child, his heir. And God says, sacrifice him. Take him to the mountain where I'll show you and sacrifice him. But Abraham knew something about God, didn't he? After 40 years of walking through life with God, he knew he could trust God. He didn't understand what God was asking him to do. I guarantee you, he didn't understand what was going on. Now, the writer of Hebrews will tell us that he understood that God would raise him from the dead if that was what was required, that God could do that. But he didn't understand, I'm sure, what was going on. He just knew that God had called him to do that and that God was faithful to him, that he could trust God because he's walked with God for so long. And it says what? The next morning he gets up, saddles the donkey, cuts the wood, takes his servant and his sons and goes to the place. Does it. He gets up to test his faith. It wasn't easy. What about Moses? Well, if you read the rest of chapter 3, move it on down like into 3-6. The story of Moses says, in verses 3-6, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He lets him know that for a reason. Because Abraham's balking and saying, whoa, 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 God. No, 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 no. Egypt is not a cool place for me. He knows what happens if he goes back to Egypt. He's a dead man. Pharaoh wants him. The people don't like him. I mean, these are all the things that are playing through his head. Why would I go someplace where my life is in jeopardy and I'm going to be rejected by the people you want me to save? And oh, by the way, do you know I can't speak well because I stutter? In one sentence, God says, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He gives this man who is really has no footing, no place, he gives him a home, he gives him a people, he gives him a nation, and he gives him a role to be part of and says, step into what I've called you, and most of all, he gives him a God to believe in. He says, trust me. As your forefathers did, as you've heard 
about these people that you know you're part of, you're part of them also. I was the God of their fathers, and I'm your God. And the faith that they had and the trust that they built, you can have as well. Trust in me. I'll be with you. And that's what we get out of that. He's tested in his faith. And yet he's going to respond. He's going to step in to what he's called to. Ananias, likewise. What happens with Ananias? We looked and saw that, that God tests Ananias. God called Ananias and he answered, here I am. Yet no sooner had he responded with the here I am than God makes it clear that he would have to face the very thing that he and many believers of the time feared most. Saul. Death. Prison. Not just prison for me, the believer, but prison for my family, my children, my wife. We were all going to prison because of this faith I'd embraced. He has a reason to be fear, fearful, and God tests his heart. He knows what those fears are. Let's look in verse 11. Ananias says, and the or God says, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. You see, Ananias immediately understood the risk, and yet God had already put before him the answer. I've already gone before you. I've prepped this place for you. You can trust me because I've already spoken in to Saul, and told him that you're going to come. Now, he doesn't know the result of that. I mean, Ananias doesn't. But he knows that God's gone before him. And so Ananias responds, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all. Who had called themselves by their name. God was asking Ananias to go and pray, really, in a sense, for his arch enemy. To pray for this man, Saul. Because God wanted to radically alter Saul's life. But he also wanted Ananias' heart. And that's what this will always do. It'll do it to each one of us. I don't know what God will call you into. I don't know if God's going to call you to walk over to your next door neighbor. Or he's going to call you into a country where the gospel cannot legally be preached. I don't know if you'll have a door slammed in your face. Or you'll be executed. I don't know. I don't know what God's going to call you to do. But I know whatever God calls you to do, and I hope. None of, neither one of those things happen. I hope that you go to your neighbor and they receive the gospel and they're saved. I hope that your sick neighbor that you go and you pray for and lay hands on receives healing. 
Like there's plenty of stories in the Bible for. I hope that if you get called to a foreign country, you see thousands and tens of thousands of people come to Christ. I hope that's what you find. But I don't know what it will be. But I do know that you can trust the God who calls you to those things. Because his promise is that he will go with you. He will go before you. He will make a way. And it will accomplish all that he intends. And if you save 10,000 people in your lifetime, praise God. But the one thing that God wants most is your heart. And he's going to test you and he's going to bring up those things. They're going to test your heart first. In each of the narratives, God requires an action. Whether it's Abraham rising early in the morning... After the call, rising early in the morning, saddling his donkey, piling on the wood, grabbing his son and two servants and heading to the mountain. Or whether it's going to Egypt with my family to face Pharaoh. Or whether it's walking down the street and praying for a man when they turn around and throw him into prison. Each of these people had to respond to the call. There had to be an action taken. It wasn't enough to say, here I am, and be done with it. Once God tested the heart, and they discerned that, yes, God was in this, and God was worth more to them than their lives. God was worth more to them than the dream of a future. God was greater than the past and the errors of the past. God was bigger than the the events of the current day, and each of them faced those things, something in the future for Abraham, something in the past for Moses, something in the current day for Ananias. God said, am I more valuable to you than the future? Am I more valuable to you than the shame and rejection of the past? Am I more valuable to you than your life today? Am I worth more to you than that? God's always after your heart. And once they've made that commitment, once they've said, you know, yes, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, God, I trust you. Then they stepped into it. They didn't hesitate. They didn't wait. They stepped into what God called them to. And that's our challenge. That's the examples we get. And that's our challenge as believers today. To hear the call of God, to realize the test that's before us, to trust God at the end of that, and to step into, by action, the thing that he has called us into. If I could have the band come up. Now, I don't want to, to in any way... minimize the severity or, the, or the, the hugeness of what God may call you into. I don't want to in any way minimize the need to plan, to think through, to discern, to be wise. God calls us to count the cost of things. But I do want to challenge you in this coming year to trust the God who calls you.
trust him to provide, trust him to be with you, trust him to go before you in whatever he calls you into. And we all have those challenges. So I want to, as a close, challenge you to practically go through some steps this week. If you are struggling with a call from God, then I have some just practical things. Ethan, could you put those out? Thanks. So, one, I just want you to write down what what you think God's calling you to do. What's it look like? It's on the back of your handout, too, so you don't need to write it down. Uh, But go home this week and What is God calling you to do? Write that down. Write down the things that you're afraid of. What's keeping you from stepping into that? What are the fears you're facing? What challenge has God put before your heart that he's testing you in? Write that down. Or those things down. Then, on top of that, go find the scriptures that line up with that. Where God says, I will be with you in those things. Or I'll meet your need here. I'm not going to let you go without. I'm going to provide for you. I'll be with you. Find the scriptures. Ask God for those scriptures that meet your fear. You don't need to be afraid anymore. Because fear paralyzes. Remember, God wants your heart. He's not going to let you go. He never has before. He won't now. Then take those fears and those scriptures and go before God in prayer. Get a friend. Invite them to be part of this, to help you pray through it. Maybe even to hold you accountable if you need it. And then the last thing I want you to do, once you've resolved that God is good and he's faithful, write down a plan and take the first step. Because if you don't take the first step, you never get there. All right? So, As we enter into this new year, my challenge to you is to hear the call of God, to respond to that call of God with the here I am, to face the challenge that he lays before you, the test of your heart, so that you can be strengthened in your faith and respond. Actually respond by action in the things that he's called you. And remember that you can trust God. You can trust the God who calls. Amen.